Hello, I am Prudence Nyamshana. Welcome to the Amnesty in Africa podcast, putting human rights defenders at the heart of every story. We continue the conversation with all human rights defenders hosted by Fatma Karume in discussion with Erika Bendera and Tito Magoti. So on the day of my mom's funeral, the director for public prosecution calls my lawyer and, and say, I want you to bring 50 million cash so we can let him out to go and bury his mother. And they said... So the director of public prosecution yeah. sought a bribe yeah, yeah, yeah. I, for yeah. you to bury yeah, yeah. your own mother. Had instances in Tanzania where people have disappeared, and we we don't know where they are. For example, Ben Sanani has disappeared. We have we know Azori Gwanda, who is a journalist, has disappeared, and we don't know where where he is either. That that's clear. That's clear. And you know, I was meant to stay in pretrial detention for the whole year. If you have yet to listen to the previous episode, I recommend pause, go back, and listen. Back to Fatma. So, how did you two keep your spirits up when you were in prison together? What did you used to say to each other? Shall I start with you, Eric? Can you remember the conversations or? Uh, so the the beginning the beginning uh, of our incarceration was quite uh, challenging because. Uh, one of the things that I got to learn about prisons in, in, in Tanzania in particular is that they, they are the worst form of the colonial uh, prisons that we saw in movies or we read in history books because you are literally not allowed anything. Um, you, you can't listen to news because radio are not allowed in prison. You can't sleep Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and and uh, the, you can't sleep on the bed. Beds are not allowed in prison. You basically, if you have, I had, you know, a terrible skin condition um, and I couldn't actually access my medical record. So I couldn't get the, the right soap for my skin to you know, to, to be able to comply with uh, my uh, health requirement. So all the rights are violated from the moment you walk in and they make it clear to you that you are not here to be treated uh, uh, with the dignity. You are not here to be treated right. You'll be stripped naked and uh, basically your private parts inspected each time you'd go out of prison, you know, together with juvenile inmates who were all put in the same prison. Um, so the, 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 mental, the mental breakdown that you get when you're subjected to this kind of situation, when you know you've not actually done anything wrong, are quite enormous. And um, so we would console each other. And, and I remember a young man who had stayed behind the bars for 12 years for a murder, a murder he never committed, walking into my cell smiling and says, you know, my brother, look at me. I have been here for 12 years 
in remand, and, remanded, uh, uh, remanded, in, uh, remanded, yes. for, remanded for 12 years. For 12 absolute. years without trial. Yeah. This is without a norm in Tanzania. It's, this a, is it's what, a norm. It's a norm. It's a norm. Yes. Yeah. So it's the normal. court had set him free, had set him free four times, and he would get rearrested and, and charged with the same crimes. By the DPP. Know, by the DPP for 12 years. And he said, look at me. I am still alive. We don't have to break down. We've got to fight. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, to give it context, uh, there were three boys on that case. They entered in prison at their teenage. One had 11 years, another had 12 years, and another had 14 years. So imagine the, the upbringing. Eh? Imagine how much did they miss eh, as a share of their childhood from this community. They never went to school. They never had parentage from, I mean, they never received the, uh, the parental care from their parents. They were disassociated with uh, their childhood life completely. And they left prison as adults in their, in their early 20s. So you can, you can, you can imagine how, how pretrial detention in Tanzania is, is quite critical. And uh, there's, there's no efforts to, 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 to redress the situation at all. And, uh, and I think I told myself at, at that time that um, I am a journalist and what I do, I write about people. I write about all these human rights abuses and uh, I'm not basically going, this incarceration period is not going to take a toll on me, but I'm going to be able to listen to these people, learn from them as much as I can and get to understand the, the kind of society we have. Because as journalists, oftentimes, we write about stories we can see, we can feel, but I, I think being behind bars, getting to see how people are mistreated, the violations that are enormous violations that take place, is basically what I focused on and, and to be able to deal with uh, the emotional challenges of, of being incarcerated. So I would spend the hours and hours trying to understand specific cases, documenting them, talking to uh, uh, prison warders to get to understand the context of why our prison system is the way it is. The human rights system, actually, that does not value people. It is what it is. I remember talking about the treatment in prison. I remember one one day I went to visit a a, 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 a man who had been held, remanded in custody, uh, accused of a murder he did not commit. And he had been in there for six or seven years. And uh, when he saw me, it was across the yard, you know, at Segerea, there was a gate and I asked the guards to get him and he came he came across. And when he saw me, he was so excited and he came running towards me and they told him to kneel, that he could not speak to me as he, as when he stood up, as he was standing, he had to kneel. Now, I couldn't tolerate speaking to somebody who is kneeling. So what I did, which is what I do with my children as well, when they were younger and they were much shorter than me, I would kneel to speak to them so that they would... I, they, they, my eyes would have contact with their eyes and I would be at the same level as, as them. And I did that. I kneeled. And I was told by the guards I had to stand up. So he would be speaking up to me 
and I would be speaking down to him. Tell me something, is this a common occurrence or did this happen just with me? Well, it is a common occurrence. Some of the things that you're not allowed to do uh, in, in uh, pre-trial uh, detention is you're not supposed to, to stand up while talking to um, a prison warders. You're not supposed to talk back until you're allowed to, to talk back, apart from uh, being subjected to this kind of things, basically, that aim at downgrading you. It's just degrading treatment, isn't it? Let's be uh, Absolutely. Honest. Absolutely. To feel that you have no value, right? You have no value. You have no rights. You are less of a human. And I think one of the things that I, I you know, quite quite puzzled me was the um, the uh, the prison warders who walk into the prison on on the search days and uh, ask everyone, the entire prison people, to strip naked and, and lie on the floor on the bare floor. And if you tried to lie on a sort of uh, a comfortable flat floor, they would ask you to lie on the muddy floor. Uh, and it would have rained and you have to lie there. And they would come and kick people. And we had so many people were injured because they were just doing an inspection. And this inspection, basically, sometimes when you would come to prison, you'd buy a small snacks, biscuits and water. They would still steal them steal everything from us during the uh, the inspection period. You know, beat people up and get away with it. Yeah, and uh, and you see, such are even the worst operations in the in the prison. We we don't mean to to demean the magnitude of what they do internally, but those uh, search conducted by the they they call them special special force for the prison. Those are the most mostly degrading and inhumane because they would jump in prison and 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 render even the ordinary prison weddings uh, incapacitated they would call them out and and take care of everyone they would lay you on the on the floor they would beat you uh, they would distract your your properties including food including papers court papers pleadings judgments you have got to read when you're in prison. But uh, for me, I, I faced such operation in a, in a setting where I was relocated to, to juvenile cell as a punishment. I didn't stop activism even when I was in prison because in one of the incidents, I challenged, uh, there was one of the prison warden happened to beat uh, some of the inmates without reason and some of them were taken to hospital outside the prison. So I challenged it, and it was a critical a critical matter of conversation in the prison. So I was relocated from the, the adult, adult cells to, to where I would stay with juveniles so that I cannot, um, I cannot influence them to do anything. So, uh, so they were they exposing, in, in, that, in doing so, they were exposing juveniles to mm -hmm. an adult man. Mm -hmm. And they didn't mm -hmm. care about this either. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, and uh, I lived with them for about six months. But when it, when they when those special special force uh, prison officers came for for search, I wanted to protest. But then I told myself, how will I know what is gonna happen to these kids? So I persevered in the spirit of understanding what they will do. I mean, it was it was horrible. It was horrible. We we were taken 
through unbearable physical exercises nakedly imagine imagine um, a population of about 300 people are naked going through physical exercises going through beatings verbal abuse you know that's not sh at all uh, and they will tell you that they, they are looking for the the materials that are not allowed in prison but where on earth where would would you un, undress someone beat them uh, so that to find out if they have say a beer or if they they have say a cigarette so it is it is really horrible and uh, kneeling down telling someone to kneel down is maybe something which is so uh, so minimal as compared to what we Thank you Tito and and thank you Eric. I once read a judgment of a high court judge and in this judgment somebody the accused was seeking bail. And in the judgment the high court judge said, well, you're not actually in prison when you are remanded in prison. It's not the same thing as being in prison. Yeah, but 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 also we should uh, put it clearly that uh, the judiciary has taken such a stand. You remember in in 2020 we had a, a constitutional case brought by by one of the lawyers challenging the the provision of the criminal procedure act uh, which he, which he denied which he, which has absolute denial of bail according to the law which subsequently hosts the powers of the court to determine bail applications the high court granted uh, the application and give directions that we the law should be amended but surprisingly the the high court i mean the court of appeal of the of the land which was uh, which was uh, expected to be instrumental in defending right to bail took another another stance saying that you know these are matters to be deliberated in the parliament so it is surprising how how the judiciary uh, is is increasingly becoming a home for persecution so this is this is something that we need to make quite clear your case was taken to the united nations working group on arbitrary detention um tito and the united Nations Working Group on Arbitrary Detention made a decision that um, your your incarceration, and not only your incarceration, the fact that Tanzania incarcerates people uh, for for what they determine as non-bailable offences, they have offences that uh, for which you cannot get bail, or the court is the court's hands are bound and they cannot give you bail. The court cannot give you bail. This contravenes the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and it also contravenes, of course, um, the 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 CP the CPA. I think, yeah, ICCPR. ICCPR. That's it. The International Convention on um, on on Civil and Political Rights. Now, your decision came out 
and Tanzania was asked by the United Nations to release you. Did they release you after that decision from the United Nations Working Group on Arbitrary Detention? Yeah, as uh, as ever, our disrespect for the rule of law was was witnessed, whereas Tanzania could not comply with the di- directions of the United Nations. We, we had to to enter into 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 a bargain conversation so that they they release me. So they they had never they had never paid heed to the findings of the the United Nations. In actual fact, I read that decision of the United Nations. Uh, working group on arbitrary detention and Tanzania was asked Absolutely. to compensate you. That's not what happened, is it, Tito? Mm. You had to compensate the government for keeping you in prison unlawfully, illegally, against international treaties for one year. Explain, please explain how yeah. this came about. Yeah, you know, given the circumstances uh, and the given given the fact that political jurisprudence had outweighed the legal, the legal system, who had to to choose the political what the political jurisprudence dictated because we were in a lawfare we were in a state of selective application of the rule of law so i i eventually had to pay for my release i i had to secure my my freedom upon paying a, a eight eight thousand us us dollars so it was it was surprisingly and you, and you paid this to the director of public prosecution under the guise of plea bargaining definitely definitely and uh, and i yes. was i was given a condition not to commit a crime for the whole year okay so the director of public prosecution uh went into, into negotiations with your lawyers seeking seeking um you to admit guilt mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yeah, of course, it was not a negotiation. We have to say this. No, no, no. Okay, so seeking your admission of of guilt of an offence that he had, the police had not concluded investigation because you were in the same boat as Eric, were you yeah, not? Definitely, definitely. You were you were charged with an offence and of a non-bailable offence. And throughout the one year, you kept going to court back and forth. And every time you went to court, you were told that investigations are not complete. And to secure your release, you had to pay the director of public prosecution $8,000. In what he termed a plea bargain. Absolutely. Could you, I, I like to refer to these as extortion, not plea bargaining. And I have my reasons for that. Explain to me, do you feel that you were in a position of bargaining with the director of public <laughs> prosecution? Yeah, yeah. It it is like uh, it is like uh, putting a putting a chicken in a room and uh, and putting a rice in that room, assuming that the the, the chicken won't eat that rice. I was put in a position where I could not, uh, where I lost the capacity to, to contract, to negotiate. You, you, you cannot negotiate uh, anything unless if it is political, uh, if you are behind bars. So I, 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 I was... Explain, when you say that, and this is very, this is very important, there are people, there are people who do plea bargain 
and they are in a position to negotiate even when bail has been taken away from them, okay? And my view is that these, these people are in a position to bargain because they are, their evidence is shown to them, the case is about to proceed, and they know that if the case proceeds, uh, their chances of being found guilty are high, Absolutely. all right? Yeah. So their bargaining power has not been taken away from them, right? That's right. You, on the other hand, you and Eric were never even shown any evidence that the state had against you because the state didn't have any evidence. They hadn't completed their investigations. Is that not so? That's right. That's right. And of course, strange enough, uh, there was no guidelines or regulations to facilitate the plea bargain process. So plea bargain was completely a prerogative of the public prosecutor. They would decide. Uh, they would decide everything on their own, and impose. Including the sum that you ought to pay. <laughs> Absolutely, there was no regulation. You know, you know, we adopted regulations uh, last year, but those who were the chief justice uh, circulars, the prosecu- the prosecutor, the public prosecutor, had only adopted guidelines this year, like two months ago. So you would see that we, we, we have had three years of plea bargain practice without uh, the law which would operationalize it. Uh, strange enough. But the, even my, my, my problem with the whole scenario is even if they did have regulations, how do you plea bargain? How do you form a plea bargain with somebody who you have incarcerated for 11 months, who does not know when their case will be heard, they could be there for 12 years, and who you are saying, I have a right to keep you incarcerated even though I have not concluded my investigation in your case, and I can keep you incarcerated for as long as I wish to until such time I think I've concluded my investigations. So my question is that in a situation like that, where's your bargaining power? It's no bargaining power at all. Nothing. Because a man called the director of public prosecution is basically telling you, look, I don't have any evidence against you. I will decide how long you stay in prison for. The only way you're going to get out is if you pay me to get out. Is that plea bargaining? Not at all. Not at all. I call it extortion. Um, So, I'll go back to the question of um, conversations that were had in prison. In a situation where you don't know when you come out, because in Tanzania you could be kept in prison for non-bailable offences indefinitely. There is no time for you to remain in prison. Do tell me something. How do you keep your spirits up, hope up? The um, the biggest challenge actually being uh, incarcerated is that the, the, there are no, um, you don't have library, you can't read, 
um, there is absolutely nothing you can do. You wake up in the morning and you sit around the whole day. Um, if, if you actually see your day to go to court, uh, you wake up in the morning and then prepare yourself for the court. So it's quite a, a boring place. Um, and to keep your spirits high is quite a challenge. And what we used to do, um, of course, I, I had um, uh, health problems, um, so I couldn't do much um, of workout. We do walks in, in very confined places. Like you walk up and down, up and down a couple of times, you know, to make sure that you 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 physically active. Rarely, when uh, a book would be allowed to come in or newspapers, you would read uh, one newspaper for a couple of days. And, and there is no important commodity in prison like a newspaper. Mm. Um, it was a critically important. important. So, so that this is how you would keep yourself going. And, and, and when you would, you would sit down, you'd be talking the same stories every day. All right. You, you repeat the stories you read in the newspapers a couple of days ago. You'd uh, talk about the juvenile prisons uh, who'd been there for uh, years and, and that they are not even allowed to write to education. Uh, so it was sort of a debate a conversation on a daily basis and it would be a wide range of, of conversation. conversation. Thank you, um, Eric. When you eventually got out, Tito, what was the first thing you did? Oh, I, I met my mom. Uh -huh. I, I made a couple of calls. I spoke to my father. I saw the joy of the family. Eventually, I, I took time off, but I, I was writing. No, I, I don't want eventually. I want to know after you, you saw your mom, what did you go home and eat? <laughs> <laughs> they, they, what they, did you they drink? Had prepared for me uh, food, uh, rice and and chicken and fish. <laughs> <laughs> was it fried chicken? <laughs> no, it was roasted. But also interestingly, yes. I I had missed watching my 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 lovely club playing simba. So so the day. Uh -huh. the, the next day we had a match, so I was so excited. I even wished I I would go to the stadium, but uh, but uh, I was so looking forward to to that match, to that game. And uh, interestingly, we won. <laughs> <laughs> so remember that, Eric. How much did you pay the DPP for your? I paid uh, uh, close to two hundred thousand US dollars, um, and. Uh, and I remember the day we were doing the so-called plea bargain in court, the DPP basically was providing instructions to the magistrate on how she should conclude the case. And she was, he was sending other officers to go and tell the magistrate what he had decided about the case. And uh, that morning, uh, the morning of my release, when he summoned my relatives to go to his office, he didn't even know where uh, uh, my f uh, my case file was, and he spent. Yeah, it didn't yeah, matter. Yeah, you, uh, absolutely, it didn't, didn't matter. matter. And <laughs> and didn't matter, eventually, did he sat in front of his computer 
and typed a few paragraphs off his head and said, these are the charges and let him sign this paper or he's not going to go out. So when the paper was brought to court and I read it, I said, I'm not going to sign this. This is quite illegal. How can I sign this? And then I had all these relatives around me shedding tears and said, we want you to go home. Come on, come home. You know, we miss you. So, and eventually... So you've never seen... You've never seen uh, your absolutely. case, right? <laughs> so when, the, the charges that you yeah, bargained, absolutely. we bargained on, what came off, yeah. off the top of yeah, the DPP's head because he, he couldn't, couldn't find, find it. your file. So when we got home, <laughs> we got home and, and because my mum had died and people were coming to, um, to see me, uh, the DPP calls and says, I don't want people to visit you because I'm going to take you back to prison if people come to your house. That is how sadistic and it was the him DPP is. And the calling DPP, from his mobile phone, mm -hmm. his mobile phone. And the DPP, the Director of Public Prosecution, he then was made a judge of the High Court Absolutely. by Samir Suluhu's Hassan. Is that not so? That, that's correct. Uh, so he keeps calling and then there is heavy surveillance at my house for weeks. I couldn't leave my house because there is surveillance. People can't come to my house because the DPP said if people showed up at my house, he was going to send them to prison. Um, and then he summons me to his office a couple of weeks later. And he tells me how to live my life post-prison in order to risk not going back to prison. And, and how, what were his instructions to you? His instructions is that everybody in Tanzania who lived in, in a nice home, eventually they were going to end up in prison. Is that what he said to That's you? That's what he said to me. And I had a couple of witnesses, you know, during this conversation. He said, he said everybody who lived in a nice home in Tanzania. Yeah, yeah, eventually. Excluding himself. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> They're going to end up in prison. And he said, okay. if you're going to associate yourself with a human rights activist, definitely you're going to go back to prison. Uh, uh, uh. And, he said, and he thought this was... So, something sensible so it had nothing this is when you re well he didn't care this is the director of public Ab prosecution he didn't care yeah. at all yeah. about the criminal side of things he did. this was just a political decision he had made Absolutely. he'd taken he'd yeah. taken um another case he, he basically charged you with an offense offenses you'd never committed yeah. because you had associated yourself yeah. with yeah. human rights activists absolutely absolutely and 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 then one last question before we end why why do dictators why do they fear human rights activists they they fear because i think what i find interesting for the case of tanzania for a society that is uh, uh very passive i would say um human rights activists over and over again have stood up to defend the people, speak on behalf of the people, speak on behalf of those who feel incapable of standing up and defending themselves. And human rights activists in the Tanzanian context, I think uh, for just their courage to stand up, they become more effective than even the security agencies that are supposed to be protecting people's rights. They become more effective than the courts themselves. Um, so I, I, I think the moment um, uh, 
and they have worked consistently over the years to make sure that they cramp down on human rights activists because they are the only people standing with the college to say this is the right way things should be done thank you eric tito one last word from you before we close did you ever meet the dpp never never in person but he met he met my my relatives but also uh, on my release uh, interestingly I, i i wrote a letter to president sulu explaining the state of criminal justice in the country based on my experience uh, recommending the way forward and uh, the dpp called one of my relatives threatening them that you know this boy has started making troubles again he has written a letter to the president and it, it has been brought to my personal attention for actions so i tell him to watch out otherwise i i bring him back to prison so he threatened you again again and again <laughs> um i just want to end with a note saying let's just hope we don't have to face him in court because he is now a judge of the high court of the united republic of tanzania that is the state of the rule of law in tanzania thank you to both of you that was fatma karume a human rights lawyer and barrister speaking to Erika Bendera and Tito Magoti. I am grateful to Fatma, Eric and Tito. Thanks for listening to the Amnesty in Africa podcast. This is the last episode of season 1 of the Amnesty in Africa podcast. Look out for season 2. It will be more exciting as we bring you more stories that put human rights defenders at the heart of each story. If you have any podcast ideas to share with us, please get in touch with us. To learn more about the work of Amnesty, please visit amnesty.org. I would like to thank everyone that has been instrumental in making this season successful. Robert Shivambu, Juniper Muitha Wanjiru, Roland Ebole, Flavia Mangovia, and of course our producer Eric Mwinamgaju and Sara Kimani and the entire East African Regional Office team we hope to see you next season bye for now